You are listening to Spacetime Mind. Please be advised that this podcast contains strong language and abstract ideas not suitable for all intelligent life forms. What country are you from? What? What? What ain't no country I ever heard of. They speak English and what? What? English, motherfucker! Do you speak it? Somehow, somehow, do a Jedi mind meld. Hello, everybody. This is Pete Mandic. Welcome to Space Time Mind. With me today is David Paraplochik, who is Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Kent State University. Hi, everyone. Welcome hey, good to Space Time Mind. Thank you. Thank you, for, uh, thank you for having me, man. That's great. Thanks for being had. <laughs> When the podcast gets published, the website, spacetimemind.com, will have links to your awesome webpage, paraplochik.com, and some of your publications. Can uh, I, is, 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 this a good, uh, is this a good time to mention that I have a new publication? I heard you have a new publication, <laughs> but what is that? I, did, did you hear about that? Wow, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm still reeling. I got, uh, I got, um, I got the email this morning that uh, Springer has agreed to publish my book, uh, book manuscript. Uh, which has uh, been many years' work, so I am thrilled to bits right now. I'm Sweet just uh, flying high, flying high. Do you have high. a title? Do you know what the title's going to be? I do, I do, and it's got an unfortunate acronym. So it's it's the um, the title is uh, the psychological import of syntactic theory. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's going to fly right off the shelves. <laughs> you could see it being a bestseller in New York Times, number one. Yeah, I could totally see it. Uh, but uh, yeah, but so but but uh, acronym is pissed, P-I-S-T. So I'm gonna be the pissed guy from here on out. I nice. think. Nice. Yeah. I, sh- I should be pissed. so lucky that people would actually. <laughs> awesome. Congratulations. And Thank before uh, before we go any deeper into our conversation about language or or whatever, we <laughs> should give a big shout out and correct congratulations to Richard Brown and his wife Jennifer, who just had a baby boy. Yeah. yeah. Ryland Hayes Brown, born on. Three four fifteen, March fourth, two thousand fifteen. Huge congratulations to Richard and Jen. Huge, yeah, That's awesome. I'm so happy for you guys. They're uh, changing diapers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, yeah, I think of you as a language guy. When I have language questions, like the other day, I was. Uh, it occurred to me I don't really know the grammar of my own language. <laughs> well, the fortunate thing for you is that most people, in fact, I would. Venture, no people, exactly zero people, no, uh, uh, in in um, in the usual sense of the word, no, uh, no, the grammar of uh, of English. I don't think there is a complete grammar of English, and there probably won't be one for a very, very, very long time. But uh, but we do have substantial chunks. There's, there are fragments of uh, your language that people know in a theoretical way, um, and then of course there are huge debates about whether people know it in some other uh, some other way. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> in the sense that you meant, I assume the sense, the book knowledge sense, uh, I don't know that anybody knows the grammar of English. Well, I mean, some, they used to teach this in, in uh, grammar school. They used to teach things like, 
what a participle was. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean there are. Um, I guess I guess it really depends on what it is that you um, what kind of adequacy conditions you set on um, yeah. on a grammar. So you know, if it's the sort of thing where it's going to help um, help a language learner from some uh, different language community uh, learn English, okay, that might be one kind of grammar, and we have those. Uh, There's some that, that help people, um, but you know, people who already have a language, they don't really. Um, they they already have so much that they uh, that the book can just um, Chomsky makes his point all the time you know that that uh, that people already have so much background knowledge just by virtue of knowing a language that uh, wouldn't give them one of those kinds of grammar books you know with participles and whatnot you're already presupposing a vast vast amount of um, of knowledge and so uh, so yeah so that's adequate for that purpose but if I suppose if the adequacy condition is give me a grammar that generates even just that generates all the strings of English. Um, yeah. We all took a vote on, like, you know, Amazon Turk or, you know, Google or something, and we got the, you know, the giant, giant, you know, trillions and trillions of sentences set of, uh, uh, of English strings. Uh, just give me a grammar that generates those. Uh, we don't have that. There's nothing like that. Generate meaning, you know, there's some finite lexical basis and... Uh, and some um, some uh, some formation tr rules, even some transformation rules, whatever. Uh, with, there's nothing like that. There's, I mean, you know, you can get a like I said, you can get a pretty nice large fragment, uh, but you can't you can't even come close to uh, to what there is. So I encountered a thing yesterday, and I wish I had saved the example. But this, I, I was reading, um, I was reading an article, and I got to this chunk where um, it struck me that the the, there was a contradiction in the grammar in the sense that the person wrote something and I thought like it was really it was really weird what, what it was was there was like a serial list and um, most of the items in the list were pluralized <laughs> and at one point there were or, or sorry they were the the serial items in the list were singular mm -hmm. um, but then they made a parenthetical remark uh, in the middle of this list about celebrities and the verb and the verb did the, the the verb agreed with all the singular items, but it didn't agree with the parenthetical. Yeah, and and I'm like, how could this have been rewritten? And I think ultimately the answer was <laughs> just start from scratch and don't get yourself in this position. Right. But it kind of looked to me like actually there were two grammatical rules that contradicted each other. It was both correct and incorrect. And I wonder if you think that actually is possible. Can there can there be contradictions in a grammar? Uh, I think, um, well, look, I think of grammars, when you get serious about a grammar, it's, um, it's a scientific theory, uh, like any other, um, you know, you have your physics, uh, you know, presumably you can axiomatize your, uh, physical theory if uh, it's sufficiently developed, and, um, and the same thing with your chemistry, and you don't want contradictions in those, not to say that we don't have contradictions in them, people say that there are formal contradictions between, um, general relativity and quantum mechanics, um, yeah. Uh, or I don't know if these are actually formal contradictions. I think maybe what we're getting is just really weird results. Uh, uh, things going to infinity where we don't know how to interpret that. I think that's a little bit different from a contradiction. But anyway, you don't want them. Even if we happen to have them, we don't want them. And uh, mm -hmm. you know, presumably string theory is a, a way of ironing those out and trying to, trying to get rid of them. So if you consider a grammar in that way, if you think of a grammar as an as a, uh, empirical theory of some natural phenomenon, as I do, 
yeah. then, um, then yeah, no, you definitely do not want, I mean, you don't want contradictions in any part of your belief system, and, and your grammar would be part of your belief system. So, um, you know, I mean, you can we can start playing games, like, you know, with paraconsistent logics and, you know... Uh, yeah, and, I like to keep things simple and assume that reality right. doesn't have contradictions in it. That, me, too, me too, me too. I mean, I'm actually quite impressed with um, Graham Priest's uh, uh, stuff on this. Um, you know, he, uh, he, he, it's not easy to refute by any, by any stretch of the imagination. But anyway, I, like you, prefer to keep things contradiction-free, and my grammar included. But one thing you might distinguish between is um, a theory of grammar and grammar itself. And depending on what grammar itself is, it might be possible to contain contradictions. And here's an analogy. So um, suppose I'm an anthropologist and I'm studying a, um, a religion. And so I, what I am studying is itself an intentional phenomenon. You could describe it as a collection of intentional items, sentences, or beliefs, or, or whatever. Um, and I wouldn't want my anthropological theory to have contradictions, but it might turn out that I attribute contradictions to this set of beliefs, that uh, maybe the, the people that I'm studying, they believe that um, they believe that their primary goddess is both exactly six feet tall and not exactly six feet tall at the same time. And, you know, maybe they don't have an ex a single explicit belief with that content, but they have two separate beliefs that they kind of have never really <laughs> compared <laughs> and realized that they that they contradict each other. So if it turns out that a grammar is um, a kind of intentional phenomenon, it's a system of, of representations, maybe with imperative content, like that you ought to do this, you ought to do that, or like the, like the set of rules in, in a game, um, like it's possible to discover that maybe the, the a set of rules in a, in um, you know like uh, expressed in a nation's constitution or expressed in a game like baseball, they actually have these weird there's these weird entailments that that we decide are kind of like, oh no, oh shit. The president right. both exists and doesn't exist. <laughs> or, you know. <laughs> yeah, I know. I see what you're saying. Actually, that's a very interesting point. You're right. If you um, if you think of uh, the writing down of a grammar on the part of a theoretician as the studying of a pre-existing grammar in the um, in the minds or in the brains of a uh, of language users, you're right. You are attributing mental representations, and though your theory can be free of contradiction, you can nevertheless attribute uh, contradictory things. Now, I think, uh, I have not thought about this. This is actually a very interesting topic that I had not uh, thought about. My, um, my first instinct is to um, take what I believe about interpretation in the, um, in the kind of personal level case, kind of like what you were talking about, what the anthropologist does, and um, try to keep my interpretations of other people as free of contradiction as possible as well. Um, you know, of course, that's not always going to be, you know, a feasible, um, uh, it's not going to be a feasible strategy uh, uh, sometimes. But I think that, you know, if you're attributing contradictions to people, there's, uh, there's some push for thinking that you've got it wrong, that you, that, that you are actually misinterpreting what's going on, um, and that a more charitable interpretation, which um, would be good evidence that it's a, a, a better uh, interpretation, would, um, would somehow twist free of those contradictions or would, would anyway not saddle the other, the other guy with contradictions. And um, uh, as I say, that's not always going to be possible because you're juggling a lot of um, right. theoretical pressures and you might just have, that might be the least uh, 
might be the least uh, least bad uh, thing that you can do is attribute to them this contradiction. Uh, you might be able to get a lot of their other inferences and uh, referential apparatus uh, in line uh, by attributing to them that just that one contradiction. It might be more satisfying that way. But I would I would think that offhand you want to you want to it's a uh, um, I put a premium on keeping even the attribution the attributed uh, uh, intentional contents uh, free of contradiction. So I, I suppose it is possible. You're, you're quite right. If you consider a grammar as an intentional entity, um, then yes, it is quite possible for there to be uh, to be contradictions in it. I just I, I would want to go with that as a last resort. Yeah. Last resort. yeah. That seems that seems right. In part, I would think that if when you abandon if you abandon the principle of charity early on in your interpretive practices, then wow, anything goes. You right. Can't. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, you Close just uh, you want to set at least that that's a constraint. <laughs> I wonder if a commitment to charity varies depending on what the target domain is. And a similar kind of question. Uh, yeah. Like, you know, why do why do we why do we value charity? By the way, um, are you listening? Do you have speakers on or something like that? Because I'm I'm hearing a weird echo of my own voice. It seems like it's coming from your end. No, no, it wouldn't. Uh, I, I, so sometimes that does happen, um, but it's not because of anything that's happening on the other side. It's um, it's uh, something about uh, your your computer and it's listening to itself somehow. So no, I, I I've only got um, headphones on, so you're yeah, not okay. Out. And your microphone is uh, is your microphone on the headphones? My microphone is here, uh, but it oh, okay. wouldn't it yeah, wouldn't yeah, be. Yeah, a yeah, right. yeah. Hmm. yeah, I don't know what. I don't think it's a big deal. Sorry to. No, I'm, I don't care. <laughs> I, I, it, it can be very annoying. You know, they used to do these... Um, uh, the Army had this uh, problem in... I don't now remember, maybe it was World War II. Um, a, lot of people, um, a lot of people claiming that they're deaf... Um, actually, I'm hearing it too now. I'm getting, I'm getting an echo of my voice. Anyway, a lot of people were claiming that they were deaf uh, because they wanted to not be on, in, 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 in on the front lines anymore. They didn't want to be risking their lives. And... Um, so uh, and being deaf was a particularly um, uh, particularly easy thing to claim uh, because how, you know who's going to prove you wrong? You know you just kind of learn not to respond to your name and not to respond to people clapping or loud sounds behind you, yeah. and you fake it pretty easy. You know I mean it's like one of these injuries that's very hard to check for and would definitely be a debilitating injury that wouldn't you know that would keep you from the front lines. So um, so the army had this problem of trying to figure out how to um, how to tell how do you tell if somebody's deaf, right? Uh, my understanding is what they did was they, they did precisely a version of what we're having a problem with now. They put headphones on people, and they had them speak, and uh, they delayed their speech by something like 1.8 seconds or 2.4 seconds or some, some number, some small number of seconds. <laughs> and it turns, out, it turns out that you can't actually talk if, you, if you're talking and uh, you have your own signal, your own speech fed back at a delay. Uh, it really trips you up in a big way. Uh, it really messes you up, and so you stop talking. You, it's involuntary. You can't control it, um, and you can't unlearn it. You can't just keep talking through the thing because it, it interrupts whatever language processing stuff is happening. And so, uh, so they were able to tell that way for you know, unfortunately for these poor suckers who were trying to you know yeah. not die. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, so that's that's kind of what's happening here. That's why it gets messed up with Skype and with cell phones when you start hearing your own voice. You know, you just can't like you can't even. Think really, it's sort of 
really yeah. screws you up. <laughs> yeah. It's a weird thing. <laughs> well, you know what those guys trying to get out of service should have done is claim that they no longer had auditory qualia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean that was around that word was around at that point, wasn't it? Um qualia. I don't know if it meant quite what it I don't I think Brian Keeley has uh has uh, a very illuminating um uh, article in um uh, some companions to the philosophy of psychology. I did a review for it. I remember reading his uh, his piece, and it was on the history of the word quality, quale. Yeah, I saw a talk, Brian Keeley's talk version of this, and he claims yeah. that you could you could trace the contemporary. Um, you know, a lot of people trace it back to um, C.I. Lewis. That's right. That's where I remember he starts. Um, but he claims that you can bring it back to C.S. Peirce. Oh. But it's. It's kind of hard. So if you look at um, if you look at the sections of of Purse where he's using qualia, it's really hard to understand what the heck he's talking about. Right. I have um I have a colleague here at Kent State, um, uh, uh, Professor Frank Ryan, and uh, uh, he specializes in the pragmatists. Um, that's that's kind of his bread and butter. So I will ask him. I will get back to you about Purse on quale and qualia. Is it? Do you know if he does it in the in the plural and singular? Is it quale or qualia? I don't recall. I, I think perhaps both, but he. I will, I, I will ask because. Is, yeah, I think he's. He, I think he's. Uh, uh, I'm getting the delay thing again. Uh, anyway, <laughs> I think what he's he's folk, he's trying to make a point about like gestalts and um, what we in a contemporary idiom would call cognitive phenomenology. This is you know probably some scholars would completely disagree with me, but my, as far as I can tell, he's trying to say that there is a what it's likeness that accompanies all mental activity, including thoughts, including like really complex perceptions of you know like your current your current visual perception of all the stuff that's in front of you right now, plus whatever thoughts you're having. He's saying that that whole thing has a uh, qual. Yeah. Qual. <laughs> Qual. <laughs> I'm not sure. What, I'm not sure what conclusion he's trying to draw from it. I don't. I don't give Purse a lot of time. Actually, there's some articles of his I like, and mostly I think that there's just a lot of gobbledygook that I, it's not worth my effort. What's interesting to me is that so when I read him, and I've I haven't read very much. Uh, I sat in on again uh, Professor Ryan's class uh, last semester. Uh, here at Kent, because um, I was interested, you know, I was like, I, I, I think I'm a pragmatist, but I'm not quite sure what that means, and uh, I need to find out if that's really true of me. Um, and so uh, so I sat in, and I, we read some purse, and the fixation of belief, uh, that's something I had read before this course, and uh, uh, I think that that's, that's a fantastic paper. That is just a killer, killer uh, uh, piece of work. Yeah, I love but, that um, too. It's uh, yeah. It's just uh, he, he just throws down the gauntlet uh, to so many people and, and so many... Uh, Different um, uh, areas of philosophy in that paper. So uh, anyhow, so I um, but then yeah, other stuff that he says, I uh, I find it's very difficult to interpret, and I don't for me, and I feel like if I'm finding insight in it, I'm not sure if it was in there to begin with or if I'm imposing it. And um, when I hear folks like um, Bob Brandom, you know, I'm a big uh, a big uh, fan of. Uh, Big fan of Robert Brandom's work, and he draws on the pragmatists quite frequently. And uh, anytime he says something about Purse to support his view, I think, "Wow, that's right. I agree with Purse." But then again, I'm not sure if Brandom is finding it in Purse or putting it into Purse. Um, you know, it's um, it's it's a reading it in. I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I don't know if we're going to have time today, but someday I want to ask you about this kind of snotty review of Brandom written by Timothy Williamson. 
Oh yeah, actually, this is a good time. Maybe uh, I um I read that, and in fact, uh, there's two of them. There's one that appeared in the um I believe in the London Review of Books, um, uh, probably that's what it was, and then another one that uh that you recently had posted um on Facebook, or you no maybe somebody else posted it and you commented on it. Anyhow, somehow it showed up in my feed tagged with your name. And so I read it, and it was the same tired criticism. Um, and it seems to me, um, yeah, it's a little bit strange because uh, Williamson clearly he does he spends maybe six, five, six pages summarizing Brandom's view in just such a pristine and masterful way. It's just he right. clearly has read it. He clearly has understood. There, there's all there are a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of nuance. There's a lot of subtlety. There's a lot going on, and then. In one page, he dismisses just this guy's whole oeuvre, you know, I don't know how to say that word properly, the guy's whole body of work um, on the basis of this one criticism, which you would think, wow, one one criticism, one silver bullet's going to kill this giant thing? Like, really? <laughs> you know, and so that that's one, you know, that's just a kind of programmatic doubt, but then when you actually look at the criticism, it seems to me to be entirely off base. Um, because what he's criticizing, I and mean, he says, look, Brandom wants to do without substantive, um, uh, a substantive notion of truth. Right. right. And, uh, you know, he wants to be a deflationist about truth. And so then, um, he, so he, he, he basically saddles Brandom with a particular, um, with a particular, uh, what's it called, um, with a particular version of deflationism, which, uh, which has as a consequence that uh, if there were no sentences, if there were no language users or no speakers, if there were no sentences to quote, then um, uh, nothing would be, um, there would be, there wouldn't be um, uh, uh, truths or, or, you know, say, you know, suppose the sentence, uh, grass is green, uh, uh, weren't there in the sense that, you know, suppose no, nobody, there were no speakers and nobody used that sentence. Uh, well, then, you know, according to this version of, Deflationism that that Williamson saddles um, saddles uh, uh, Brandon with, uh, you know, it wouldn't be um, it wouldn't be true that grass is green, uh, and so somehow you know worldly facts are supposed to. Um, uh, maybe that's not what the criticism was. Now hold on, uh, maybe what it was was uh, one of these uh, church Langendoan um, translation things. Maybe a, a you know a monolingual Turkish speaker could um, understand. God, you know, this is so. I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on what the criticism was, but whichever, whatever the criticism in, in detail was, I'd have to go back and look at it. Um, I'm sad that I'm not, uh, I'm not able to articulate it exactly, precisely now. But the idea was that Brandom's version of deflationism has this uh, uh, untoward consequence, this, this sort of uh, bad, bad entailment. And uh, it seems to me that that's not the case. Uh, Brandom's version of deflationism is a particular particular version. There's a, there's a lot of different ways of spelling out uh, uh, minimalist or deflationist theories of truth. Brandom's um, doesn't, in fact, uh, uh, I find, have the uh, consequence that Williamson uh, 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 draws from it. Um, and I think probably the best way of stating deflationism is not as a disquotation schema, or not, not as a commitment to disquotation. So it has nothing to do with quotation whatsoever. It's just um, about the... Uh, the expressive role of the um, of the truth uh, of the truth predicate, uh, or ex the expressive role of, of the term true, um, may not be a predicate. It's uh, according to Brandom a kind of pro sentence, 
Um, like a pronoun, but for a whole sentence. Right. Anyway, um, the point is that, you know, the equivalence is between it's true that P, where P isn't quoted, like it's true that we are now talking, and we are now talking. Uh, so it's the equivalence between it's true that P and P. So no quotation involved, hence no reference to sentences, hence none of the uh, untoward consequences that uh, Williamson draws um, uh, uh, against Brandon. And, you know, look, you know, deflationism is a very important piece of Brandon's whole program. It is, and he even says in um, one of his uh, audio lectures about making it explicit that he was going to make chapter five, which is the deflationism chapter, uh, he was going to make that chapter one because he thought that that was the cornerstone. That was the most important insight um, uh, that he had had. And then he said, well, you know, I actually realized that there are a lot of moving parts and it's not the most important insight. It's, it is important, but, you know, I'm going to bury it in the middle of the book uh, so that people get to see a lot more of how the program works before they get to this deflationism stuff. So Williamson is right that it's important, but, you know, I just, I don't know that even if Williamson was right, were right, uh, which I don't think he is again, but, uh, but if he were, I'm just not sure that it would really kill the entire program. I think it would have to, uh, yeah. it would force Brandon to revise bits and pieces, uh, which would be a significant result. But anyway, as I say, I don't think, uh, I don't think that, that um, Williamson's um, objection really works. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, he's, a, he's an incredibly, incredibly talented philosopher and very, uh, he's not just influential. There's a reason he's influential. He's a very, very smart guy. Um, and, uh, you know, I aspire to be uh, uh, like him in many respects. But in this respect, I think he's, uh, he's um, missed the mark. So one thing that I noticed throughout Williamson's work, and, and I, don't, I don't follow it very closely, I should say, but it still strikes me whenever I do encounter it, that he's very much, um, he's a truth-first kind of person. That, so, you know, like when, when you approach issues in semantics or metaphysics, you could take someone like, uh, you could take an approach like Brandom's, which you might say is more proof-theoretic and contrast that against something that's more model-theoretic. Brandom himself would, would carve up the territory as inferentialist versus referentialists. Yeah, or he calls them representationalists, uh, which I guess... Representationalists. Yeah, I, I, these uh, terms are a little bit unfortunate just because uh, representationalist already has a um, usage in the theory of perception, obviously. Right, right. Um, and uh, sometime I'd like to pick your brain about whether you're a representationalist, but uh, um, anyhow, right? So, so that's a little bit of a that's a little bit of a, a, a um, terminological, you know, snafu there. But yes, anyway, he calls them inferentialist versus representationalist. Yeah. And uh, so I don't know what kind of label Williamson would be happy with, but but I think he is pretty happy with that kind of way of carving up the territory and seeing himself as on the side that um, would be opposed to Brandom. And a lot of times he'll he'll sing the praises of that side as that people that that make these kinds of assumptions they have much stronger results that there are these various technical triumphs that they get to claim the representation. But it's always uh, yeah. Sure. So Williamson will will make this kind of brag. I think there's truth to that. I think at this stage of the game, my view is that the inferentialist is not even close to um, the... Uh, what I think is going on is that the, ref the, the reference theoretic or model theoretic uh, tradition in formal semantics specifically has been going for a very long time and though I think that it's philosophically, uh, it's philosophical foundational assumptions about what language is and how it works are, um, uh, I think are, are flawed. I think they're deeply, deeply flawed. 
Um, it has been, has been going for a long time and has a lot of um, a lot of momentum and a lot of results that it's already been able to um, uh, 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 you know display. And the inferentialist uh, program is at this point um, uh, only just uh, just getting going. I mean, Brandom has made arguments to the effect that it's been uh, it's uh, you know the philosophical foundations have been around. For a long time, he credits uh, a lot of he credits Kant and to some extent Spinoza and other folks with uh, a lot of the foundational insights. But the actual formal work hasn't really begun even. Uh, yeah. Brandon is the only person that I know of that is uh, actively working to um, fashion a formal semantics uh, uh, on the basis of those um, inferentialist assumptions. And at this stage of the game, it's one of these sorts of things that, uh, that Kuhn and Lakatos and uh, the old school sort of philosophy of science uh, folks talked about, which is um, what, under what conditions should a young scientist or a young theorist um, uh, pursue one kind of uh, one kind of research program over another? And you know, it's quite legitimate. I think it's very rational for for people to see that there are lots of results in this one area, um, and to, or with this one kind of theory, the referentialist theory, uh, and uh, and go with that on that ground. Or you can do what I take myself to be doing, which is take a look at an alternative research program that hasn't yet yielded um, uh, very much fruit in terms of uh, formal results, uh, but has, because of its foundational assumptions, um, uh, a lot more promise. So you sort of choose not on the basis of actual results, but on the basis of future potential. And, um, you know, it's a big bet, of course, because, uh, because you might be wrong about the future potential. Um, but uh, as it happens, I think that the reference theoretic people are wrong about uh, the, um, the their successes. But look, the 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 formal successes that uh, he might be talking about is that at the very least they have a formal account of quantification. How about that? Quantification is a um, an incredibly rich central phenomenon of natural language, um, and Brandom Brandom doesn't have uh, uh, that. Brandom's uh, formal semantics uh, has um, can do propositional logic, and can even do uh, modal logic in the same um, or modal propositional logic in um, in the same way. And uh, some really classy results that he has in his book uh, between saying and doing, a lot of formal results there. But um, he can't do quantification, you know. And uh, who's going to take you? I mean, what what formal semanticists who doesn't really care about philosophy, who doesn't who hasn't you know, who doesn't care about you know the foundational assumptions about language? They just want to do formal semantics. Who's going to take that seriously? Right. I take it that that's our uh, time to take a break. Is that is that right? The alarm. Yeah, we have hit a, a, a mark for a break, so let's uh, pause for a break. Sure, let's do that.
Mm. That was a good break, David. I hope yeah, you enjoyed that. Fantastic break. I'm really into that break. That was uh, that was killer. <laughs> so I am I'm very much an outsider in, in these debates that uh, that you're referring to. And so one thing I wonder is, what the heck? I, what do you? When someone says, "Guess what? I can do," um, I could do quantification. <laughs> I have a formal account of quantification. Right. What the what the fuck do they have? <laughs> they have a um, they have a theory that predicts. Um, well, I mean, look. Obviously, there are a lot of different um, ideas floating around about what semantics is, what the purpose of semantics is, and um, I'm going to beg a lot of questions uh, by answering your question. Um, because, uh, you know, I have commitments in this area, and so uh, I'm going to talk the way I prefer to talk. Probably other people won't want to talk that way, but uh, um, I think a pretty central goal of semantic theory is to, um, is to figure out um, what inferential consequences um, a particular sentence will have. And so if you have a formal system that can explain why, uh, you know, all humans are mortal entails that Pete is mortal, um, then uh, that's a good thing. Or if, you know, uh, if you can explain why from Pete is mortal, you can uh, conclude that uh, there exists somebody who is mortal, um, then, uh, you know, that's, that, that, these are sorts of things that we'd like to have explained. So they, what they have what the, is an explanation. But what's the datum? The, the, in this in this example, the data the datum that you're trying to explain is that people speak in certain ways using words like all and some, or is it that it's it's a yeah, datum about I, I think logic that itself? That I think that's a good. I think the best place to start. I, mean, I think with these things, you, I prefer methodologically to be as tethered as possible to the facts on the ground. Um, you know, there's a bit of a residual sort of empiricism here. You know, I, I, I want to be tethered to things that I can see happening. Um, and, of course, you know, there are questions about what it means to see something happening. Of course, I'm applying theory-laden concepts and so on. But, uh, you know, I see people making inferences. I see people talking, and I see people taking certain inferences seriously and, and uh, rejecting others and so on. So, um, so first approximation, yeah, what they have is an explanation of, of why people talk the way that they talk. Um, and now... Uh, at this point, we're going to want to make a whole bunch of then, qualifications, and, and what kind of qualifications you make is really going to be a, a subject of debate. You know, so one person might say, "Well, it's not just that we're talking; it's not just that it's a theory of how people actually talk; it's a theory of how people ought to talk. It's a, it's a normative theory about uh, what the right way is of talking, what the rational way of talking is. What's, uh, you know, the other people might cast it as a theory of interpretation. You know, what's the best way of interpreting somebody? What's, um, you know, what's the best way of being most charitable to somebody, or or, or whatever. But um, we can uh, we can skip the niceties. We can skip the uh, the more uh, heavy duty, theoretically loaded um, glosses on what's going on, and just say, look, we're all trying to theorize about this thing that happens. These creatures running around. They're yapping at one another, and we're trying to get a theory of the yapping. So, yeah, ultimately it's a kind of human behavior. Uh, or, of course, you can also think of language not as human behavior. You can think of it as a, as a neural state or as a mental state, as a kind of cognitive state. And in that case, what you're trying to explain is why does the mind, why is the mind organized in such a way that 
you know, uh, a universal quantification entails its instances, and instances entail existential quantifications in your head, in your mind. Uh, so maybe it's a mental fact that they're trying to explain, you know, or maybe both. Uh, but but anyway, it's it's there's certainly a naturalistic fact that is there to be explained. So. Now these ways of describing the data make it seem really implausible that the the referentialist or the truth or model theoretic approach is going to give you an explanation. It seems like the deck really? is Do you think? Wow. Do you think that that's a sufficiently wow. neutral way of describing the datum that there's that the uh, the truth or reference theoretic person actually gets to claim some victories? Or here's I mean, another way of asking a question. So, like, given that way of describing the datum, what is a victory that um, the reference theoretic approach can claim? Uh, How, they can like, claim just a simple explanation they can offer uh, that the reason that all humans are mortal entails that David is mortal is that, uh, well, if there's a, um, a universe of discourse and that uh, uh, there's these predicates, human and mortal, and there's this quantifier, and we give some rules for how to interpret the predicates and how to interpret the quantifier with regard to that universe of discourse, and you find that it's uh, given, given various axioms about how those predicates work and how that quantifier works, you get as an entailment of the theory the fact that the one kind of claim entails the other. And so since people do in fact talk that way, they do in fact recognize those entailments uh, and behave in accordance with those entailments. Like if I told you, you know, all of the apples on your table are, um, are um, you know, poisoned, you wouldn't eat the apples, you wouldn't eat any single one of them. Uh, and, you know, that's because you recognize a certain kind of entailment. And we want an explanation of that. And this sort of axiomatized theory uh, gives us that, you know. So I'm not sure. Um, there are more complex phenomena. My, my friend uh, Dan Harris, uh, whom you know as well, he's uh, working at Hunter, sent me um, an email the other day saying, here's something that the referentialist has that the, um, that the inferentialist doesn't have. Uh, namely, we can explain the distribution of negative polarity items. Uh, we can explain the distribution of... Um, well, yeah, these things that linguists call negative polarity items. So that's more complex, but we can even keep it, like I say, we can keep it at a, at a pretty low level, just quantification, because the inferentialist doesn't even have that. Um, and uh, so I wonder, well, why do you think that the deck is, the deck is uh, stacked against them? Because they certainly, I mean, that's, this is the most, um, referential semantics is the most uh, successful um, scientific approach to meaning, uh, allegedly. So, uh, well, uh, I mean, I don't buy it myself, but why do you... Um, why do you reject it, or what's, what, what seems to be uh, what seems lacking to you about it? Well, if you describe the data in terms of human behaviors, certain yeah. kinds of speech outputs or patterns thereof, um, that those uh, patterns are true, uh, I don't see why that would exp give. I mean, assuming a uh, what the what a reference theoretic person would probably say about truth, that it's like correspondence, and correspondence is some kind of like non-causal relation between truth bearers and truth makers, a relation of, I don't know what, correspondence, <laughs> a relation of truth making. Yeah. That, that certain uh, patterns of speech are true, I don't see how that would explain that the, the creatures in question make those patterns of speech. So by analogy, suppose we wonder, 
why is it that people say that the Earth is round? Why do, why do people make that noise, the Earth is round? And uh, it seems like a really bad answer to say, well, it's because the Earth is round. <laughs> uh, it's an incomplete no. answer. You need to connect the roundness of the Earth. The roundness, the roundness of the Earth, like, why, by itself doesn't explain why people would behave in this certain way. You need, you need to say a lot more about, like, why their speech would reflect the truth. Yeah, how, the, how the, it's being true can cause them to have these behaviors. So the but the uh, so if you're describing the data already is just like well why are brains working in such and such a way or why uh, why are these these patterns of behavior? Well, the inferentialist is not is is already going to be talking about these local things, these uh, local causally efficacious things like um, patterns of inference, which uh, which you can kind of see as in the ballpark. We could see how the one sort of thing could cause or explain the other sort of thing in a way that it's really hard to see from the perspective of correspondence theory of truth, how the one thing could cause the other thing. So, yeah, that, no. so that's the source of my uh, worry Interesting. about the, the description of the data maybe stacking the deck in favor of the inferentialist. Well, look, I, so Quine one time said, you know, I feel like a, uh, what is it, a, a, a kosher chef serving... Uh, Serving pork to uh, to to my uh, to you know uh, uh, my clientele here because he was defending a view that he doesn't uh, that he doesn't himself endorse, and so I feel that way here. I don't myself endorse referential semantics, so I feel a little bit uh, weird uh, defending it. But um, oh, do it. <laughs> but in the you spirit, like it. the thing is, I want to channel one thing. I really you know I've been listening to a lot of episodes of Space Time Mind, and uh, one thing that I really like about the way Richard does things is that uh, he, uh, you know, and he says he knows this of himself because he says it of himself, uh, and I think he's quite right to do so, uh, that he, uh, you know, he wants to be as charitable as possible and think, you know, look, if some really smart person holds some view, you don't have to endorse the view, but you at least want to know why somebody that's not an idiot uh, believes, you know, this thing, and so you want to get to the bottom of that. And I think that's a really great way of, I think that's, you know, that's the, yeah. the spirit of the charity move. So, uh so in that spirit, in uh, channeling Richard Brown here, let me try to defend the referentialist from your critique. I think the referentialist would have two responses. I think they would concede your point about mental representation, about um, it not being a um, that a formal semantics in the referentialist model theoretic style wouldn't by itself count as a uh, explanation of human behavior. You would have to embed it. Uh, you would have to psychologize it in the sense that you would have to say that these things that we have um, that we formal semanticists have, co have come up with are in some way or other psychologically real that they um, that there are perhaps mental representations of um, the universal quantifier and our formal semantics just tells us how those mental representations work how they uh, how they um, you know play with one another and so on and so you would have to somehow embed the uh, semantics, the the, sem the semantic portion of the grammar, I suppose, into a psychological theory before you can get any behavioral, uh, behavioral or even psychological predictions. So that's uh, that's uh, I think they would concede to you on that, but I think they wouldn't mind conceding because uh, most of the, these folks uh, think that what they're engaged in is a is a psycho psychological inquiry. They they, uh, they think that once you write down a grammar, including the semantic axioms of the grammar. Then you're doing psychology. You're talking about something about how the mind works, or some some system of mental representations, or something. So, suitably interpreted in that way, or if you add those auxiliary assumptions, that would be one way of addressing your concern. The other way, and this I'm a little bit more trepidatious about, 
is to say that maybe it's not right to saddle the formal semanticist with a correspondence theory of truth. This, it's hard to evaluate sociologically just because the semanticists that I am familiar with, they're quite explicit that they're working, that they think of themselves as uh, doing a, a psychological, performing a psychological inquiry. Uh, and uh, they're quite explicit about that, but they're very often not explicit about what they mean by truth. And for all I know, if you told them about deflationism, if you sat down a room full of formal semanticists who normally would not want to do any philosophy at all, and you said, okay, we are forcing you to do philosophy now, here are the available theories of truth. There is the coherence theory, there's the correspondence theory, there's uh, the prag prag pragmatic theory, and then there's the deflationist theory, and here are all the sub-varieties thereof. It's not clear to me that if you took a poll after that class session was over, uh, that all the formal semanticists would say, I'm a correspondence theorist, obviously. I think, um, I think a lot of them would abstain from the vote, and I think for those that didn't abstain, some of them might say, no, deflationism sounds perfectly fine for my purposes. So I'm, I'm not sure that you, you can legitimately saddle them with a correspondence theory. I agree that the correspondence theory uh, is philosophically lacking. But for, my, for, my, uh, for my philosophical tastes, uh, uh, it, it is an unexplanatory... Uh, theory, and I, I, you know, I, I do think it's open to that objection, but I'm not sure if formal semantics is saddled with that theory. But now, is it is it fair to say that Williamson, like you, I have only dabbled in Williamson's work. I have not delved. I have only dabbled. So, uh, for all I know, yes, he is committed to that. Um, he certainly doesn't like deflationism. I'll tell you that, or at least he doesn't like the deflationist. He doesn't like the deflationism that he thinks he finds in Brandom. Okay. As I say, I think uh, you know that's not what's actually in Brandom, uh, and he uh, he should be more careful about that. But um, but yes, it seems to me he's not he's not on board with that. <laughs> so yeah. So uh, how would you like to switch gears slightly? I I'm all about switching gears. Let's switch away. What would how you about like to we switch about? gears from truth to meaning? Truth to meaning. Yeah, that's that's much better. That's a good switch. There's really not much to say about truth. A little. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot to say about meaning. <laughs> I only have falsehoods to say about truth. <laughs> a little bird told me you're cooking up something about holism. Oh. Because you hate holism or something like that, you're gonna. No, I love holism. You're I, I destroy think... all holism. <laughs> no, no, I I love holism. I think holism is um, I think holism is the is the core insight that uh, we get from, um, from folks like uh, Quine and Sellers and uh, Brandom and, and uh, Churchland especially. I think, um, I think if I had to pick somebody who I um, admire the most for their defenses of holism, uh, it wouldn't be Sellers because I think the writing is uh, very opaque. It's very difficult to, it's not user friendly. Mm -hmm. And it wouldn't be Quine because Quine, you know, he's a holist, he's a confirmation holist and he does, along with the positivists, think that something like verification is, um, you know, if meaning were anything, it would be that. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, so you know, so he gets a kind of confirmation. So he gets a kind of meaning holism that way. But you know, he's, it's not hard to read him as a meaning nihilist, right, uh, or whatever. And so, you know, there's all sorts of uh, weird issues to work out with both of those guys, interpretive issues and um, you know, exegetical issues. But with Churchland. Uh, it's crystal clear. Churchland is user-friendly. He's clear. He sets out his commitments. If you don't agree with him, at least you know where to poke, you know. And so, yeah. uh, so I I, um, I admire his work on that, as on many other things, um, uh, greatly. 
And, um, you know, so Churchland's holism, and of course, you know, as you know, I, I uh, get a lot of uh, my philosophical um, attitudes and chops and so on from uh, um, David Rosenthal from the, um, from the CUNY Graduate Center, uh, mentored me in many ways uh, when I was there. And, uh, you know, so his brand, of the, that brand of holism strikes me as, um, as the way to go. And um, so, yeah, I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan. So you're, not a, you're not a meaning, you're not a meaning nihilist. I'm not. No, I do think that, yeah, I'm not a meaning nihilist. I do think that... Uh, so you quantify over meanings? <laughs> no, uh, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that. No, I don't quantify over meanings. I don't posit meanings Woo! over entities. No, I don't think that. But I do think, um, I do think that it's, uh, I think it's perfectly legitimate to talk about means the same. I think, um, you know, uh, uh, you can uh, talk about this meaning that. Uh, and, you know, Sellers showed us how to do that. I think Sellers showed us with his dot quote apparatus uh, how to, how to re um, regiment uh, means talk. I think uh, Sellers, this is actually would be a very interesting thing to bring in a formal semanticist to see if we can update Sellers' uh, dot quote stuff and render it in a more um, respectable contemporary scientific semantics key. But I think the um, the insight is uh, is there. It's uh, uh, the the means is a um, a kind of messed up version of the copula. And so when I say x means y, what I mean is x has you know the functional role in that language as y has in my language or in our language. So I don't mind talking meanings. I don't mind talking means the same. I don't want to quantify over meanings, and since I'm a nominalist, I don't think that there are meaning properties, but that's trivial because there are no properties. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, we can get more diagnostics on the case here. We can, you can pick my brain about uh, how far I'm willing to go with means talk, but, um, but I, I'm certainly not allergic to it. I'm not allergic to uh, talking of things having meanings or talk of things being meaningful. You're cool at meaning talk. I'm not going to go, I'm not going to go all out and quantify over meanings. But um, but I, I can talk I can talk the means talk with the meanest of them, and you're so you're cool with a, a some kind of means the same as relation. And it, is it right? Is it fair to say it's a relation between linguistic items or linguistic roles? Yeah, I would think that um you know the word dog as it uh, uh comes out of my mouth today means roughly the same as the word dog as it comes out of your mouth today. Uh, probably doesn't mean exactly the same, and it wouldn't really mean exactly the same unless we were, um, we were unless we had identical functional structures in the sense that uh, we were disposed to make identical inferences and uh, perform identical actions and uh, um, uh, uh, make this identical perceptual judgments and so on. Uh, so it's never going to be exactly the same. But you can. Uh, um, it's not that the notion makes no sense. It's just that extensionally, it's empty. There's no two people that have ever actually meant the same, exactly the same, by any by anything. But you know, uh, probably there's been no two people who are exactly the same height. Uh, that doesn't mean that the notion of being the same exact height makes no sense. It just might mean that nobody is, uh, you know, that the that the uh, equivalence is never in fact instantiated. So you know, I might be one electron taller than the next guy. And it might be that each person is one electron taller than the next. <laughs> but in the in the case of um, in the case of height, we've got some kind of metric. So to some degree of fidelity, we could figure out like how much you know which of us is is more similar with respect to height to 
Larry Bird, who I heard plays <laughs> basketball. So yeah, I've heard that as well. Probably taller than us. <laughs> but we've got a way of we've got a way of ordering people, not with infinite precision, but we still have a way of ordering people with respect to their heights. Do we yeah. do we have anything analogous to ordering uh, people with respect or ordering utterances or whatever the bearers of meaning are with respect to similarity and meaning, or is it just? Well, I think okay. uh, again, again here we wanna we wanna be careful about. Um, separating just practical abilities from um, uh, how strong our theoretical grip on these things is. I think practically speaking, we are so amazing, just absolutely amazing at doing exactly what you just said, at, uh, at, providing, um, at providing orderings, not to infinite precision, but to a very, very impressive... I mean, I, am, I marvel daily at the degree of precision uh, to which we are able to uh, to do this, and uh, you know, some people are trained at it better than others. Poets, um, lawyers, you know, people who have to deal with fine-grained nuances of meaning on a regular basis. Uh, people who are interpreting uh, legal statutes and the Constitution and uh, poetry and and so on. I think we're amazing, amazing at telling when two things don't quite mean the same and uh, how far apart they are and which ones are closer and you know ordering ordering them so say you know b is between a and c in respect of how close they are in meaning and so on i think we're very good at that as a practical ability now as a theoretical uh, matter i think yeah we've got pretty much nothing we've got very very little the tools that we have are very crude if you've used um, google translate recently uh, my friend wrote my friend yuri niazov who i want to give a shout out to here he wrote a program that takes a sentence, puts it into Google Translate, translates it into some other language, then uh, puts that translation back in and does a back translation and does it, you know, 20 times or so. And by the time you are done doing this thing, you get just gobbledygook. I mean, it's like, it's, it's a may. I mean, 10, 10 runs through this program uh, of any sentence renders it into total gobbledygook. And so, uh, yeah or something completely different from what it was before. And that's our best. That's our best. That's the best we've got, uh, theoretically speaking. I mean, uh, Google is um, has a huge, huge amount of data that it's working with. It's got amazingly talented programmers. They employ linguists. They employ uh, syntacticians. They employ uh, statistical um, computational linguists. Uh, so they, they have thrown everything and the kitchen sink at this problem. Oh, I, th I thought Google Translate was purely statistical. Uh, I don't know actually how it works. I should look into it. I, I suspect that... So when people say statistical, mm -hmm. this is... Um, it's like if I said, are you ready? You should really ask me for further clarification <laughs> as to what it is I'm asking you to be ready for. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, when people say statistical, my first instinct is to ask, what are the statistics being run over? And uh, there are many options here. You can do bigrams, uh, so you can just get a corpus and find out what is the statistical probability that if I have this word, call it word number one, that I would get word number two as uh, the next rightmost concatenated element. Right. Um, you could also do trigrams, which, um, you know, that's another thing. And if you, uh, you know, obviously, if you can do bi and tri, you can do... I suppose they'd be called quadrograms or quintograms or, you know, sextograms, septograms, octograms, whatever. Uh, you can do those. 
But it turns out that um, it's actually a lot more effective. You can boost the efficiency of your um, uh, parsing or translation algorithms if you run statistics over things other than just lexical items or bigrams or trigrams thereof. You can run statistics over um, syntactic structures. So you know, take a, a really simple context-free grammar. The one you know, just sentence goes to noun phrase, verb phrase, noun phrase goes to determiner, noun, and so on. You can run statistics over that. So how often, if I have this syntactic structure, do I get this other syntactic structure, right? Or how often is it the case that if I have a noun phrase, that that noun phrase begins with a determiner versus not? So here's a noun phrase, Pete. Here's another noun phrase, the guy I'm talking about. Um, but you know, the, the, this is going to be a very dumb question because I'm very dumb. Uh, but do we know enough that we can program a computer to parse the a corpus into some, those kinds of syntactic structures? Yeah, yeah. We um we have there's something called the pen tree bank, and this is a um this is a corpus of all of the Wall Street Journal from oh I don't remember from the 1980s or 90s or I mean it's a giant giant corpus millions okay. and millions and millions of uh, sentences. Uh, that I've actually personally worked with um, when I was doing computational linguistics projects at CUNY, and uh, yeah, it's pretty impressive. It's t they are tagged um, hierarchically. Uh, some of them are hand tagged. Those are of course the gold standard because you have a real live human who told us what the answer is, and then there are people working on. Suppose you have a hundred of them that are hand tagged. That's the gold standard. Um, can you write a program that kind of keeps going? You know, as Wittgenstein says, you know. Uh, uh, well, God, I forget the quote now, but you know, uh, knowing how to carry on. Or yeah, something like yeah, that. carries on. We can write an algorithm that carries on, as it were, and uh, and uh, yeah. So, um, so uh, yeah, we do have that. We have uh, we have well, several of those. The Pendry Tree Bank is actually a pretty old uh, tool. It's probably the most developed and the most worked on, but there are a lot of uh, other corpi or corpuses, I don't know how to say that word properly, um, that we, we do have this. We do have that already. Okay. I see. Yeah, I, what you called bigrams and trigrams, I assumed that that was all that Google had access to. No, yeah, no. Had, there are, um, if you check out the uh, uh, soon-to-be-published book, Psychological Import of Syntactic Theory, you will find a, uh, a discussion of what are called probabilistic context-free grammars. Which is um, uh, they're context-free grammars, so you know S goes to NPVP and so on. Uh, but they have, in addition to the rule, they have a, a little probability marker that says how likely the rule is to be applied. And so then, if you have conflicts between potential rules that could be applied to a particular string, the algorithm chooses the best ranked one, the uh, the one that's most likely um, given previous utterances. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty. Uh, it's pretty neat stuff. So you know, and the thing is, of course, the richer your grammar, so context three is pretty sad. I mean, it's it's a good start, but it's you know, it's it's uh, pretty dinky uh, uh, given what we know about how language actually works. Um, we know that it's not even context free. We know that it's mildly context sensitive, uh, and that's been shown to my satisfaction anyway. So uh, um, anyhow, so. Uh, so, you know, suppose you have a grammar that has as its primitives not sentence, noun phrase, noun, uh, but has as its primitives something really, really detailed and complex, like, you know, animate count noun in the singular referring to a human or something, 
right? Yeah. So suppose that's your primitive category, or at least that's a category that you can build out of the primitives of you know singular and animate and so on, and you run statistics over that shit. Oh man, well then um, you you know so you notice that as you get more fine grained with the grammar or the categories over which you are running the statistics, right? If, uh, you know, bigrams or trigrams are the simplest possible thing. It's just word, word, or you know, lexical item. No, word actually is probably is your only primitive. So you're running statistics over those, right? Yeah. But you know, you can imagine if you if you get more more intense than word, and uh, uh, you start positing categories like you know, uh, you know, singular, animate, noun, thing, or whatever. Uh, then um, uh, your statistics are going to be more useful. At the same time, you're going to need a lot more computational power to um, to actually run the statistics. You know, the reason bigrams and trigrams are so popular is because, well, it's goddamn easy to run. You know, it's right. easy to run the statistics. Um, it's much harder if you have to sift through and find all the things that are a noun phrase followed by a ditransitive verb followed by two noun phrases. Uh, you know, that's that takes a little bit of searching and uh, and is hard. You know, it's it's hard to see. It's it's harder to uh, to build up uh, a, a probabilistic grammar of that kind. So, but it's not impossible. Hard is not impossible. Hard is uh, hard is what Google is is there for. Um, Google, I I would be very surprised to learn that Google runs just bigrams and trigrams. I would think that they have gone well beyond that by this point. Interesting. We should take a break. Yeah. And let's take that break right now. <laughs> understands the binary language of moisture evaporation. Welcome back from the break, ladies and gentlemen. So we've got this is our I love these breaks. These are, these are non-break breaks. Yeah. Hey. I, I had a Hi everyone, we're back. I had a very satisfying break. I don't know what your problem is. Um, can you squeeze in uh, an argument for meaning holism? Convince me to be a meaning holist. Well, I actually, I'm not sure that this is meaning holism in the traditional. There's so many things that go by the name meaning holism, and um, I've got an argument for something that I would not feel ashamed to call meaning holism, but um, it might not be, it might not be as juicy as some of the other things that have been called meaning holism. So, uh, let me know what you think about it. But it's um, it's pretty simple actually. Um, the argument, I mean. Um, here it is, right? So it's just two premises, so that's what makes it simple, two premises. And so, you know, if you think there's something wrong with it, you know where to poke. Um, here they are. Um, premise number one. 
And uh, I must admit to you that I'm right now I'm reading off the screen, but since I'm only told <laughs> two, two sentences, I get to do that. Um, what a nerd. <laughs> so premise one is this. It's um, the syntactic property. So now we're not doing semantics yet. We're doing syntax right now. Okay. The syntactic properties of the expressions of any human natural language are constituted by the relations that those expressions bear to all of the other expressions in the language. So maybe put a little bit more shortly, syntax is holistic. Now, premise two, the semantic properties, now we're doing semantics, the semantic properties of the expressions of any human natural language are partially constituted by their syntactic properties. And from those two things, you get, voila, the conclusion that the semantic properties of the expressions of any human natural language are partially constituted by the relations that those expressions bear to all the other expressions in that language. So, so this is a, um, so here, here's the short version. Syntax, the syntax of any sentence is a, is a um, relational, highly relational uh, holistic property, not an, uh, not an intrinsic property of that sentence. And uh, the syntax determines the semantics to some extent, partially determines it. And so, voila, the semantics is also a highly relational, not intrinsic property of the, um, of, uh, of the sentence. And this, uh, I, I said it about sentences, but it applies to any, um, it applies to words and phrases and whatever you like. So, I've now uh, written this up and I've sent it out, so I'm sure I will. Um, I'm sure I'll be hearing soon about why it's wrong and stupid, and or why it's true but trivial, um, or whatever. But um, I thought I'd hit you with it and our listeners here and see, uh, see, um, see where. So you know, the, the fun thing is, there's only two places you can deny. You can get off the boat because the argument is deductively valid. So you got to you got to either challenge that syntactic properties are holistic. Or you got a challenge that syntactic properties partially determine semantic ones, and of course both of those are open to challenge. You can, I can imagine very, um, very informed, smart people challenging me on those. But um, um, you know, I'll take all comers. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> you know, with philosophy, uh, when you think that something's simple, it usually turns out it isn't. Oh, of course, no, no. This is. I mean, the thing is, with this, we already know right off the bat that it's not going to be simple. So it's it's we can we can drop the pretense. We can drop the pretense at step one. <laughs> I could imagine people just pooping on your use of the word constituted, 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 constituted. What is that word? <laughs> constitutive. Yes, or constituted by. That's right. That's right. That's right. But uh, I'm guessing the the heat is in premise two. I see. Interesting. I actually, uh, in presenting this to, to some folks informally, I found that the heat is always on premise one. Why do you think syntax is holistic? Uh. If I have dogs bark, that's a sentence, and it doesn't matter if there are any other sentences. Dogs is a noun phrase, and bark is a verb phrase, and so there it is. One sentence all by itself without any other sentences can have syntactic properties, so shut up is the, uh, is the message wow. that I've got. Well, maybe I should see clarification on the first premise first. <laughs> so, um, by the way, I wrote down your premise in Mandic shorthand. Oh, good, good. But what I wrote down is the syntactic properties are constituted by global expression relations. Yes, that's right. That's right. So um, it's not just it's not just that um, what makes something. So, 
an example of a syntactic property would be like nounness. Yeah, being like, a noun, being a sentence, being a, being a verb, things like that. It's not just that that's, that property is de defined by relations to other expressions, but it's defined by something close to relations to all the expressions. Uh, I would probably say no, you don't need all, but you need you need a lot anyway. You, I, I don't know that I'd need to commit myself to all, uh, but, but I do need to commit myself to a lot. Uh, enough. Sixty-nine point two percent. This is a very good question, actually. Um, I, I want to think carefully about how to phrase this. I might get it wrong off the bat because I'm improvising a little bit here. But uh, yeah, um, I would say enough expressions that you can that you can justify the grammar that you are positing for that language, right? Because if you're going to classify something as a noun. What you're saying, if I say dog or dogs is a noun, is that dog or dogs, let's say dogs, uh, goes in the same box as all these other words like computer, bottle, cloud, dog, uh, I already said dog, uh, girl, boy, finger, and so on. Okay, well, so how many of those do you need before we start calling it a category that the grammar needs to respect? Um, that, a, that a grammar that's adequate to this particular language would need to have this box that we can throw these things in. Uh, you know, I don't know. Um, maybe all you need is ten other words, and then it's a, it's a box. You know, maybe uh, maybe all you need for a legitimate category to appear as a primitive in your grammar is that there just be ten of them. I, I, I guess I don't think so. I think that if there were just ten examples of something, I could see some linguist calling it a fluke or saying that it's a performance error or saying that it's not really in the grammar or some fucking thing. I don't know. Um, you know, but uh, so a lot. You'd, you'd want a lot. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, but you'd, you wouldn't need all of them. You would just need a lot of them. Hmm. So here, here might, this might help you out. So suppose you found a creature and it only said dogs bark. That's the only thing it ever said. Okay, so I know it, that guy. And uh, <laughs> he's in our department. <laughs> he's got tenure, so I mean, what else is he gonna say? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so my claim, I suppose, is that if that's the only thing this thing ever said, you couldn't actually split that sentence up into dogs and bark. You would have no. Um, you would have no grounds for doing so. There would be no um, theoretical uh, purchase for splitting the sentence up into dogs and bark, into splitting dogs into dog and the plural marker, and so on, because um, this thing, uh, this creature that we're imagining, just has this one vocalization unrelated to anything else, mm -hmm. and it's only in the relations that you get um, any legitimization or any rationalization for splitting for for for. Uh, we're saying, oh, there are two elements here. One of them is belongs in the noun box, and the other one belongs in the verb box, and so on. Um, you don't get that sort of thing. So, um, uh, you know, I guess I can imagine somebody saying, I can actually really hear Richard making this move. I almost hear Richard in my head now, saying, look, you're you're doing epistemology. You're just talking about how we know that um, dogs is a noun. You're faced with this creature, it has one vocalization, 
dogs bark. And um, that one vocalization, you might not have any reasons, you might not have any epistemological justification for carving up its vocalization into two pieces or into three pieces or whatever, but nevertheless there could be a fact of the matter about its being a noun phrase or it's being a verb phrase, uh, and it's having those two pieces and so on. It's just that you would never have reason to, to say that. That's an epistemic matter, but, but, uh, but you can't draw any metaphysical conclusions from that. And, um, uh, I, you know, that's a move that's frequently made in philosophy, and I find it, um, you know, I, 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 I think um, we have to be careful with these kinds of, these are delicate matters, and ultimately the objector might be right. Um, but I, um, but I guess I'm not sure I see, if I have no reason to say something, then I think that the best the opponent can say is that it might not be, it might be that way. So we have, let's imagine this creature, it only has the one vocalization. Um, yeah. I think that the most that the objector can get out of me is that I may be wrong in saying that this, uh, that there's no, um, that this creature's vocalization is unsplittable, that I may be wrong, but that I am wrong, uh, I don't think we can get that just from pressing on the epistemology-metaphysics distinction. Because after all, when we're arguing about what is the case as opposed to what may be the case, uh, that's when evidence comes to, comes to matter. And um, if we don't have any evidence, then the simplest hypothesis is that the creature is, um, is that the creature doesn't have any, there's no, there's no um, nouns or verbs in that language. Um, or, you, you know, you don't need to posit nouns and verbs in order to explain anything about this creature, and if you don't need to, you ought not to. So, um, so yeah, I think, you know, I can imagine somebody, somebody lobbing the, um, the metaphysics epistemology distinction at me, but I think it would be ineffective. I think the most that it, it would make me grant is what I'm willing to grant anyway, that I might be wrong. That I, I, it may be that, unbeknownst to me, the creature actually does have a noun and a verb, just one, <laughs> in its language. Um, but maybe, you know, I mean, one thing that I find is um, characteristic of your discussions with Richard in this, um, in this podcast is that Richard is uh, very willing oftentimes to go modal to um, when a question arises about the nature of consciousness or the nature of the mind or whatever, Richard's first instinct is oftentimes to, um, to say, well, let's think about, you know, what could be or what's possible or what's necessary and so on. And um, I find oftentimes listening to it that you're reluctant to make that move or that you don't, um, you don't take the move as seriously as he does. And I must confess that I'm closer to, to you on this point than I am to Richard. Um, I don't, I'm not much moved by... Uh, by modal considerations. So sure, it may be, it's possible, it's anyway conceivable that the creature doesn't have, um, uh, uh, does have nouns and verbs in its language. But anyway, I don't think it's true. I don't think it's actual, and I don't myself much care about what's possible. I just really care about what's actual. So um, I'm trying. To, I'll, I'll try to pretend to be a, a, a rabid modal realist. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so. Should I say then that um, noun nounness has to do with um, tracking objects and verbness has to do with like tracking actions? So there's like the universe itself, the real world is carved into these different chunks that are kind of 
of the shape of gra gra grammatical categories. And then we have these different like detectors or something. And um, so my dog, my dog detector fires, and that is expressing a noun, a mental noun, because it's tracking a thing. But my barks detector is firing, and what makes that a verb is that it's tracking an action. And even though, like, um, I am so constituted that I only ever have these detectors go off in concert, I never have dog go off without barks or barks go off without dog. Uh, I don't I don't satisfy um, what some people call generality, the generality constraint from Gareth Evans, varieties of reference. I don't satisfy that. I don't I don't satisfy that kind of inferential um, or syntactic promiscuity with my representational scheme. But it's like facts about the world that makes it makes the these that secures these uh, atomistic uh, syntactic properties is that is that what I should say if I'm gonna uh, fight you on this and be uh, an atomist about syntax? I think you would be ill-advised to go that way. Um, myself, uh, that's certainly a possible thing to say. Sure, um, I think you'd be ill-advised for two reasons. One reason is that you are tying syntactic. Um, properties. Uh, of course, I'm slumming it myself with property talk. Um, as I've mentioned, uh, when the chips are down, I'm happy to nom uh, to uh, uh, do some nominalist uh, paraphrases. I'm confident that we can uh, carry those off in all relevant circumstances. So um, uh, anyhow, but, uh, but I'll slum and talk about properties. Uh, now, uh, you're casting um, uh, syntactic properties, like being a noun, in uh, semantic terms, uh, like denoting a particular kind of thing, uh, uh, or anyway, denoting a thing, or anyway, denoting as opposed to uh, whatever predicates do. Yeah, I was trying to pretend to be an atomist or, or non-holist about syntax, because that's your, your first premise is syntactic holism. Right, right. And I was yeah. surprised that you, you claim that you've been getting grief about that. I don't I don't know enough about the relevant literature. I would have thought it would just be obvious that something very holistic was true about syntax. Yeah, you know, I would have thought it was obvious as well. And um, the thing is, the reason that I find this argument to be um, interesting uh, isn't because it establishes a, you know, ridiculously strong form of, of holism or whatever. It's just that it seems to, nobody seems to have noticed this thing. And most people do, in fact, hold that syntax uh, determines semantics. This is something you hear people say, you know, whatever other, whatever their other um, theoretical commitments are. Very few people deny this. Uh, not nobody. I think uh, I think David Rosenthal might actually deny it. Um, but uh, but you know, very few people anyway deny it. Um, and um, and very few people, as far as I can tell, have ever said anything at all about whether syntax is holistic or not. But it seems to me sort of something like patently obvious that syntax is indeed holistic. Um, like, so uh, what I was saying was the reason your pretend atomist, your hypothetical atomist, uh, uh, wouldn't really want to go that route. Uh, Chomsky's um, uh, colorless green ideas example, you know, the sentence colorless green ideas sleep furiously, mm -hmm. um, is supposed to show a number of things. Uh, but one of the things it's supposed to show is that a uh, sentence can be uh, syntactically uh, kosher 
without being um, semantically, I mean, I think he thinks it's semantically sort of uninterpretable or meaningless or semantically screwy or something. Yeah. But the point is that everything about the syntax of the sentence is perfectly fine. We don't find any problem with the syntax. And so um, uh, there, uh, Chomsky had uh, kicked off a debate about what's often called the autonomy of syntax, whether syntax is an autonomous uh, domain that can be studied independently of semantics um, or independently of semantic considerations. And the reason that he, um, he holds so dearly uh, the syntactic autonomy thesis is that, um, well, you know, actually, I don't, I don't know what the deeper reasons are for why he holds it. Um, I was going to try to venture a guess, but I won't here. Uh, but, uh, but the idea is that a noun isn't, what a noun is, is going to be determined by what role the predicate is a noun plays in whatever is the ultimate grammar for English. And, um, and uh, that's not going to be, uh, it might wind up being coextensive with person, place, or thing which is what traditionally people mean by noun, uh, or anyway what baby grammar books uh, say they, it means, but, uh, um, you know, but it, but, uh, but it might not, and, uh, and that wouldn't matter, because noun is uh, a syntactic, not a semantic uh, notion. So, uh, now, uh, whether it is coextensive with person, place, or thing, uh, I, you know, it depends on what you mean by thing. Thing is a pretty loose sortal, if it's a sortal at all, and uh, so, you know, the, the, the destruction, destruction is a noun, but is it a thing? Is destruction a thing? And that raises questions as to in what sense do we mean thing? You know, I mean, we're, we're fairly clear. I think you can raise those kinds of metaphysical puzzles about persons and places. What counts as a person? What counts as a place? But even if you got those settled, which, you know, maybe for some theoretical purposes you can settle what counts as a person or as a place, a thing? It's a thing. Is destruction a thing? Is multiplication a thing? I don't know. Uh, it's it's uh it's hard to say. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um you know so I don't think your your atomist is going to want to go that way. I don't think your atomist is going to want to derive syntactic categories from semantic categories. The other thing in your scenario, you imagine this creature, and uh, the atomist holds. Well, look, there are these two things that happen inside the creature. Uh, one is a dog detector and one is a barks detector. And you said, but they always, as a matter of fact, go off simultaneously. You never have them going off separately, and you don't have any kind of combinatorial or recombinatorial capacities in this creature. Right. My question would be to the atomist, to the hypothetical atomist, why do you think that there are two things there? They, uh, uh, so what? maybe my question is better pressed as an explanatory request. What explanatory purchase do you get uh, what what predictive power or explanatory power do you get that you, uh, from positing two separate things that you wouldn't get from positing just one thing? So well, maybe we could we could draw the distinction brainily. Ah, well, that's uh, I think that's a common maneuver, but I think that that's um that's a, a bit of a strange thing to say just because. Uh, you know, suppose there's two distinct brain events. But they always happen together. Why divide them up into two events as opposed to saying that they are one event? <laughs> why, why? I mean, if they always occur together, you know, on what basis are we splitting them up into two? On, uh, you know, so like suppose something happens 
Yeah, uh, uh, you know, suppose you have something going off in prefrontal cortex, and then suppose you also have something going off in Wernicke's area or Broca's area or something like that, and they always happen at the same time. It's just the only thing that's separate about them is their, um, as it were, geographical separation or their um, topological separation. Right. Um, why is that two events? Why is topology even relevant here? Or brain geography? Like, what, what, what the hell does that matter, right? Why couldn't that just be one event? Um, now, of course, again, I hear Richard Brown in my head, as I very frequently do, by the way. I always, I have this um, devil's advocate. Yeah, yeah, I have, uh, you know, they say that Martin Luther uh, was um, was obsessed, you know, when you when you read his diaries, it's sort of these, uh, you know, he's, uh, it's as though Satan is always talking to him in the background, and he's always got this conversation going on with Satan, and how to avoid him, and how to, how to, you know, he's just obsessed, obviously, with this guy, and he's, you know, a lot of the, the diary is just trying to exercise this, this demon from his mind, and um, uh, obviously the analogy to Richard is, is, uh, is not perfect, because uh, I actually uh, uh, respect Richard a great deal and like him a lot, so he's not the demon in my mind, but he is certainly the, the thing in my mind that I wrestle with when I, you know, when I have somebody that's going to press the modal objection, or that's going to press the... Um, the uh, epistemology metaphysics distinction objection or many others uh, like it. Um, uh, so, you know, somebody might say, well, look, although it never actually happens that these, um, you know, these brain events or this brain event never gets split into two, it might. It's possible, even though not ever actual, uh, that, that there would be two things there and that it's because of their modal properties, not because of their, um, you know, non-modal properties, but because of their modal properties that we want to separate them off from one another, okay? Um, and, uh, you know, again, you could sort of guess what my reply would be, which is, you know, we, um, uh, we don't know what their modal properties are without knowing first what their actual properties are. And, uh, you know, I think it's question-begging to say that their modal properties, they could come apart, you know. Uh, uh, if, if, the, if it's really just one event, then it couldn't come apart. And if it's really two events, then okay, sure, you know, maybe they could, they could come apart even though they never do, but you'd have to first settle whether it's one event or two before you can talk about the modal properties. And, you know, so if you're not going to beg questions, if you're not going to question beggingly say, there are two things here, and the reason there are two instead of one is because they can uh, uh, can in some other possible world come apart. You know that begs the question because one can equally argue no, there's one event, and so any possible world in which that one event is split into two is a possible world in which that one event simply no longer exists. So, um, you know, uh, you can play the game both ways, and it, either way, it depends on knowing first what's actual and only then going to what's possible. Let me uh, switch yeah. gears and focus on premise two then, um, okay, yeah, I'm I'm surprised that people give you a hard time about premise one, but I'm just not very familiar with the literature. I think. Well, you know, I mean, I'm surprised that Jerry Fodor thinks that you can have a creature that has just one concept. You know. Well, I was going to bring Jerry Fodor up and talk about um, premise two. Sure, let's do it. As best as I know, Fodor. Although, have you talked to him about this argument? 
Well, I actually submitted a paper to him one time, uh, which had a, uh, a the, the an early germination or early germ version of um, uh, of the, of premise one as a footnote in it. Uh, he taught a course at NYU, and I um I sat in, or actually no, I audited. I was officially auditing that course, and um, it's the course where he was developing his Darwin book. Okay. Um, so you know it wasn't uh, um, it wasn't some of his usual stuff. Uh, although who knows what's usual anymore. Um, but uh, um, in that course, I submitted a paper that was on the language of thought um, hypothesis and uh, and systematicity. I was very interested for a time. Um, you might recall, I was very interested in systematicity for a long time and. Um, this property that he attributes to languages and to mentalese in order to get uh, the language of thought hypothesis off the ground. Anyway, so obviously systematicity has a lot to do with syntax, and um, uh, I had a footnote that said syntactic properties are obviously holistic. And he had he didn't mark up the paper very much. He had only a couple of comments here and there, um, which was you know fine. He's obviously a very busy guy, um, but uh, his comment he definitely picked up on that. And he yeah. clearly saw that as a danger. Hmm. And he said something in it. He said he denied it. He did say, well, they appear to be holistic. I wish I could remember. He, he pulled some move. He said, but you can have non-holistic local properties go proxy for the holistic ones. And I guess at the time I thought, this man is so smart that one day I will figure out what he means proxy. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, I, I guess I'm still waiting for that day, and uh, I still think that Jerry Fodor is maybe a thousand times smarter than I will ever, ever, ever be. Um, uh, and really, truly a great man who's done a, a, an amazing amount for um, philosophy, even if I don't agree with a lot of his views. Uh, he's really progressed the field of philosophy of mind forward in a way that many, many others have not. Um, but uh, on this point, I just don't. I didn't understand his reticence, and uh, so yes, people have given hmm. me a hard time about well, it. What I was going to guess, yeah, that's interesting. What what I was going to guess is that he would grant you premise one, but give you uh, crap about premise two. I don't think he. I think premise two is. That, yeah. The thing that makes me say that is that um, there's a lot of areas in which he will grant a kind of functionalism or or holism. So, for example. Um, when he talks about the attitudes, mental attitudes. That's right. Yeah. Right. The atti attitudes are individuated, um, internal, internalistically slash functionalistically. So whether uh, whether some chunk of the language of thought is being tokened in the belief box versus the desire box, those boxes are determined um, in ways that he would describe as uh, functionalistic or, or holistic. That's quite right. And also his, his talk of modularity, modules are also functionally defined. Um, they're certainly not biologically defined or, or um, you know, they're not defined in terms of... Uh, well, actually, that's not true. He does, he does actually say... He does actually say that the, one, of the, one of the family of uh, conglomerated properties that he takes to be... Um, you know, the, the family resemblance that, that, that characterizes modules, one of them, if I recall correctly from the modularity of mind, was a pretty stable, fixed, genetically determined neural architecture. So, um, so I, don't, uh, I don't know that he actually would 
go for a purely functional criterion, but I think, I th so first approximation, his characterization of modules, of Fodor-style modules, is also functional. So I agree. He is obviously willing to still buy functionalism about many things, and maybe syntax should or would be one of those. But um, again, I don't think he, he agrees so, on that. This is part of the weirding way that we will teach you. Some thoughts have a certain sound, that being the equivalent to a form. Through sound and motion, you will be able to paralyze nerves, shatter bones, set fires, suffocate an enemy or burst his organs. We will kill until no Harkonnen breathes Arakine air. So maybe I'm not uh, representing Fodor here, but I could be a quasi-Fodor. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to resist you on, uh, in the following way. So I, I, um, I grant to you premise one that syntax is um, holistic. holistic in this uh, very, pretty broad and global way. It may include most uh, relations to most of the other expressions in the, in the language or the language of thought. But um, I, I think you can deny premise two and still have some kind of atomism about uh, meaning in um, something like uh, this way. So like once, once um, something is up and running as a noun, uh, so let's let's say the example is dogs. Tok it's tokenings of, of the of the dogs symbol as opposed to uh, a verb. Like oh wow, he's really dogging me. Yo dog, I heard you like dogging dogs. <laughs> uh, what makes a noun versus a, a verb is is it's going to be some kind of syntactic and maybe even holistic stuff. But its its semantics is nonetheless defined atomistically. There's this a asymmetric causal dependence that relates dogs to tokenings of my dog symbol. And it doesn't... So that, so this thing, it, it, it means... Like, once we have that background of uh, that, that, that gives it its syntactic status as a noun, what gives it its meaning as, for example, that it means dogs instead of cows is that it's caused by, uh, in this asymmetric blah, blah, blah way, it's caused by dogs and not cows. And it, it, yeah. it, it, it doesn't matter, for meaning dog, it doesn't matter what else I might believe. It doesn't matter what I might believe about dogs. And so that's what makes, that's what blocks the second premise. That would make, that's what makes it. Okay, so that's uh, interesting. That's atomistic. That's what I would have guessed. Guess. That's, that's interesting. Now, um, uh, I guess here are the two sorts of things that I would say in reply, and I am kind of thinking on my feet here, so, you know, there might be, I might not be representing my own position as, as well as, uh, as I could be, but um, one thing is that that does take care of the meanings of the pieces of the atoms, um, supposing you're an atomist and you think that the concepts come in sort of word-sized units, but what about the sentences themselves, right? So... Uh, you know, a uh, those pieces they have to be combined in some way or other, and uh, certain combinations are going to be licensed, and certain combinations are not going to be licensed. 
Um, the language of thought isn't an arbitrary, you know, concatenation of all the symbols. If it's a language, if it really is a language, then um, then it's going to have well-formed formulas, and it's going to have, you know, not well-formed formulas, and so on. And also, how the meanings of each of the pieces combine to make the meanings of the bigger pieces, so how the meanings of the words constitute the meanings of the sentences, isn't arbitrary, right? So, for example, John kissed Mary means that John kissed Mary, not that Mary kissed John. And so it's the, you know, it's um, mm -hmm. part of the meaning of that sentence is that John was the one doing the kissing. Maybe kissing isn't great because kissing is in some ways uh, symmetric, but let's say John loves Mary, right? So it's in that case, it's the John that's, that's, the, that's doing the loving, and it's not because of the semantic properties of John. It's because of the syntactic role that it um, occupies in that sentence. So I think that the only way that, the, um, that these, this person has a chance of opposing me is uh, uh, something that Fodor would never, ever want to say, which is that uh, the meanings of the sentences are actually primary. That the meaning, so suppose you had a John loves Mary detector, and so and that is a little thing that gets tokened or lit up every time you notice that John loves Mary. Uh, okay, well in that case, sure, the you know that's not the meaning of John loves Mary now taken as just a single functional unit, uh, isn't determined by the meanings of the of the constituent words. It's determined by the causal relation to the situation of John loving Mary. Yeah. Okay. But that's certainly not Fodor's view. Fodor, Fodor's view is that John means John because of the causal relations, and loves means loves, and Mary means Mary, and then the syntax comes in. <laughs> right. So, so, uh, so that's um, that. That would be a pretty unattractive thing, I think, for 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 atomists to but say. But this, but this doesn't. But now, I mean, if you're just going to be focusing on sentence meaning, it doesn't look like you have much of a victory against Fodor. Language of thought theory all along has said that, right, sentence meaning dep depends on combinatorics. No duh, we've been telling you that since the 70s. <laughs> this, is a, this isn't a victory for holism over, over atomism. I would well, have thought, interest in, I'm continuing to be quasi-photor. I would have thought, if you were going to be interesting, kid, that you would have uh, an argument for, for holism. So big whoop, sentence meaning. Yeah, well, I mean, I suppose if you hold, I guess, I think it's as exciting a thesis that if you have one meaningful sentence and that you want to, and that the reason that sentence is meaningful isn't because of um, the fact that the sentence tracks a particular state of affairs, but you hold that the sentence is meaningful partially in virtue of the way that the parts are put together, it's pretty exciting to find out that you can't just have one, that you need a lot, that whatever explanation there a is... A lot of sentences. Yeah. Yeah. But, that's, but, I mean, isn't that already... Isn't that the premise of productivity, that there are, in some sense of are, there are all these sentences? Well, so what's productivity say? Productivity says that there are, um, as a contingent matter of fact, either very, very many or infinitely many sentences. Now, we want to ask, what exactly explains that, if it's a, if it's a datum? I don't myself think it's a datum, but 
supposing it's a datum, what explains it? And uh, Fodor is going to say language of thought, hypothesis, and uh, uh, meaning that uh, there are these atomistic pieces, and they're going to get put together using a syntax. If you point out that the syntax is itself holistic, then you what you find out is that it wasn't a contingent property or that uh, productivity is, as it were, entailed by the holistic nature of syntax. And if you buy that syntax is holistic mm -hmm. and that syntax constitutes partially constitutes the meaning of a sentence, then you know, I, I guess I guess maybe one result of this, I'm again I'm thinking on my feet here, so I might be wrong about everything I'm saying, but one result of this is that um is that productivity may not be a um, a contingent feature of uh, of 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 human languages. Uh, Fodor certainly casts it as a contingent feature, um, but it might be something that is entailed by the holistic nature of syntax. Yeah, but I'm going to continue yeah. to be quasi Fodor here and give you a hard time. Sure. Saying, sure. Uh, look, here's the here's the Fedorian or quasi Fedorian system. So we have this. If there's this empirical fact about thinkers. It's not supposed to be something just true by definition about thinkers, but it's this empirical fact that we observe, that we observe that they are productive, they exhibit productivity. Sure. And then we wonder, like, well, what would explain that? Here's one thing that would explain it. If, if our thoughts were composed combinatorically uh, from a finite store of symbols, then it's entailed, it's logically entailed, that if they were so composed, then you would get productivity. This is a very typical kind of scientific inference. We've got this, there's this empirical datum, and then we hypothesize, uh, we posit some stuff that would logically entail that you would get that datum. And so we say, aha, our theory is true. But the, what you're calling, but the, the kind of holism that you're getting from this, uh, that you, David Pierpluchik, are claiming, it's actually kind of, would be unsurprising. If you, want to, yeah. if, if you want to call that uh, holism, then okay, that's a, that's fine. All right, that doesn't seem to me what the holism atomism wars have been about. Well, that kind. Of I suppose. Anyway. I suppose maybe you're right. Maybe maybe it is just a trivial consequence of what. Uh, but uh, yeah, I guess I guess one 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 problem for me is to figure out, as you're pointing out, what's exciting about this this particular kind of holism that uh, you know we didn't already know, or that would uh, that would shock anybody, or that would be interesting in any way. You know, one thing is that you couldn't have a creature. So Fodor's fond of saying that you can have a creature with a single concept, and people people freak out about that, right? And that's uh, that's that's supposed yeah. to be a very interesting, controversial, implausible thesis. Now, is this any less controversial, implausible, or or um, uh, worth defending or worth rejecting? Uh, that it's possible for a creature to have just one sentence uh, in its language of thought, and uh, I would have thought that you know that's that's a question that we want to settle. I mean, even if we don't find any such creatures, as philosophers, we want to find out. You know, is that just uh, is that just because there just happened to not be any around? Is that because you know evolution killed them all off or something? Natural selection killed them all off, uh, or is it that there's something? In um, in the very nature of sentences, or in the very nature of mental representations, 
that um, has that consequence that you wouldn't find it. You couldn't find a creature. Um, you, you would never. You would never have any evidence for a creature having just one sentence. Is better evidence for that creature having no language of thought at all. Yeah. And uh, I guess maybe one thing that my argument establishes is that it's uh, is that you couldn't you couldn't have such a creature. You couldn't have a creature with one sentence. Um, where where by sentence I mean thing constructed on the basis of a grammar from independently meaningful atomic pieces. Right. You know, as you say, I mean, I'm seeing more and more as I'm talking. I'm sort of thinking through your your uh, your comment here, and I'm thinking more and more that this might not be as exciting as I uh, as I originally thought. Um, but uh, now anyway, I feel it's bad. It's somewhat exciting. What's that? Now I feel bad. Oh, you shouldn't feel bad. I actually, um, I actually think that, uh, uh, and this might be a good thing to close on. I, um, I think that you know a lot of people in philosophy proceed in this way, where if you tell them that you're that they're wrong, that uh, or something that they've said isn't particularly interesting or isn't a good argument or whatever, um, they take that as a kind of um, as though you've hurt them, as though you've, uh, as though you've uh, done violence to them in some way that you've uh, that you you know they take it personally. And um, I, uh, I, I like the following analogy, which I came up with a couple of years ago and uh, has been with me ever since and it has served me very well in my own interactions with other philosophers, is um, that uh, if somebody tells me I'm wrong, uh, and you know, given that I'm a holist, if not only for this argument but for other reasons, uh, given that I'm a, a holist, I think you know, as soon as you have a false belief in your web, that shit's gonna metastasize. It's like a cancer. It's like a tumor that's gonna that's gonna cause all sorts of problems all over the whole web. And if um if you convince me that I'm wrong about something, then what you've done is essentially the mental equivalent of cancer surgery. You've removed a tumor from my psychology, oh, and uh, you've done me a huge favor, a huge huge favor. That I don't think and say stupid things in the future, you know? But shouldn't I have anesthetized you first before I removed your tumor? Uh, I think that that's, uh, you know, it depends on the pain tolerance of the patient, and I guess what I'm saying is <laughs> I'm pretty pain tolerant in this regard. So, um, you know, I, I don't like it when, um, one thing I don't like is when people lob intellectually dishonest or um, question begging or just um, ad hominem uh, when people argue in a way that's unfair and that's not uh, becoming of um, of, uh, of academics, and and that's that's when I do get uh, upset and riled up and uh, and aggravated and so on. But that's because well, maybe if you weren't such an idiot, it wouldn't bother you. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, you're lucky. This is a Skype thing. If I were over there. <laughs>
Bye. Bye. Bye.